0: chapter 10 and verses 14 and 15. We take up a passage that precedes his actual crucifixion because he explains what he's doing in his crucifixion. So here are these two verses, John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine." As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This morning, in the Lord's mercies and providence, we hope to observe the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, we take up the sign and seal which He has appointed to remind us and to impress upon us the reality of His work and its accomplished fact but also to enjoy the benefits of Christ. That He is no longer dead, but is risen. And so we're directed to the sign in order to remember the Savior. And not just as we remember things in the past, in our own experience, but to remember Him who did this in the past, and yet is alive right now, and is to commune with His beloved people by His grace. It's fitting for us to take up His words here as we prepare and consider the Lord's Supper because here we find the words, I lay down my life for the sheep. Oh, there's much in that simple expression, His willingness, His utter control of all that's taking place, His sovereign approach to it, His purpose for it, and other such things. Well, the Scriptures show that Those who are charged with caring for the Lord's people are those who love God's people by His grace. And if they do so, they will sacrificially serve the people for whom they have been given. So you think of Moses, who was, of course, a type and anticipation of Christ, not the Savior. And yet we see him when the people sin, he's on his face and he's imploring the Lord for mercy. He's guiding the people with much sacrifice to his own well-being. Why? Well, he's charged to care for the people, to lead the people, to guide the people, and he loves both the God who has charged him and the people that he's been charged to care for. We see this as well in the Apostle Paul. The various traveling that he experienced, the suffering, and even the beatings that he endured, who would say they would want to experience that. And yet Paul was willing because charged by the Lord to care for the people of God. You think of elders who by Paul are charged in the book of Acts chapter 20 to feed the flock of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Their office is for the sake of the care of the people. And yet here, Christ in the passage before us is explaining His office, His work, not as an under-shepherd, as was Moses and Paul and pastors today, but as the Good Shepherd who is over all. So you can think of it this way. You can think of the lesser, Moses, Isaiah, Paul, Peter, pastors today, and if they're displaying... By God's grace, a loving care for and service to the church, what then of the greater, which is Jesus Christ the Good Shepherd? What does He do? Well, He says it here, I lay down my life for the sheep. The passage contains a most comforting testimony of Christ's work for His people. Notice in the text itself, there's the identifying of Christ's office. I am the good shepherd he's not a shepherd he's not another shepherd he's not one in a long line of others anticipating one to come he is the emphatic good shepherd he is the one who has been anticipated the one who was to come and now is you find as well in the text a twofold intimacy that Christ enjoys which connects something for us notice He says, "...as the Father knoweth Me, even so know I the Father." And so there's an intimate relation between Son and Father in the Godhead as well as in His mediation. He's not at odds with the Father. The Father's not at odds with Him. It's not as in the false teaching of some that say, well, the Father's really angry and upset and the Son's going to twist His arm into relenting. No, He is at one with the Father and is in intimate agreement with Him, not only as He is one as God, but likewise as He is one in purpose. So He has intimacy with His Father, which then tells us that all that Christ is doing is in accordance with the Father's purpose, which opens up for us a moment to see that The love displayed by Christ is a love that flows from each person within the one Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. But notice as well, the other intimacy is that He has intimacy with His people. He says, I am the Good Shepherd and know My sheep and have known of Mine. And it's no coincidence that in this Gospel, His prayer is recorded where he's relating these two intimacies together. As you are in me, and I in you, so, Lord, let them be in me, and I in them. And so what we see is, Christ is the mediator between God and man. He's the one that brings the two together. Not because he ventured on his own accord, but because he was the one appointed by the Father to accomplish this work of reconciling His people. He knows His sheep. If you're looking in the English, you'll see that the word sheep is in italics because the word sheep is not in the Greek. It's rather this emphatic testimony, I know mine. Mine. They're mine. We know, of course, that Christ elsewhere testifies, these are they you gave Me before the foundation of the world. Thine they were, but Thou gavest them Me. And so he's undertaking this work out of a love to his Father and a love to the people that were given to him. And you find as well in the text a simple statement of his work for the sheep, which we hope to focus on. I lay down my life for the sheep. This word, laying down, is... A generous way of testifying of his willing death on their behalf. And so he contrasts it earlier with the robber and the thief and so on. But here he testifies of himself. Whatever others may do, I will not capitulate. I will give myself, notice the language, for the sheep. Thus, the sense is that as Christ loves and cares for His people, even as a shepherd does His sheep, so Christ, in accordance to the purpose of His Father, gives Himself for them, which we hope to consider as we think of Christ's loving laying down of His life for His people. Of course, this is the message of the cross. When we think of the cross, there are many aspects and avenues to consider it. But here is one, the willingness of Christ to give Himself in their place out of love for them. Consider then two things. Firstly, the reason Christ laid down His life for His people. And secondly, the way Christ laid down His life for His people. You see, this is a teaching throughout the Scriptures with great clarity that He laid down His life for his people. And here, though he's using an image that helps us, as it were, color out the portrait, that he's likening himself to a shepherd for a sheep, yet that's but one way of understanding this work of Christ in giving himself for his people. So consider then, firstly, the reason that Christ laid down his life for his people. Now, one such reason the scriptures tell us is that first, we have to understand what the sheep deserved. And this will help us understand why Christ laid his life down. What did the sheep deserve? It's an interesting image that the Scriptures make of his people choosing this imagery of sheep. Farmers will tell you that sheep are not among the wisest of creatures. And if you ever venture to a land, whether in Missouri or elsewhere, where there are sheep, you'll find them often stuck in fences and wandering off unto their own peril and danger. And this is precisely one reason why the Scriptures use this to describe us. Think for a moment of Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we, like sheep, have done what? Been docile and kind, and you know, pretty... And cute, not at all. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. That's what the sheep have done. And it's not a part of the flock. It's all of the flock. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And it goes further. We've turned everyone to his own way. Now here's the point. The sheep have gone astray according to their own desires. What this is saying, of course, is they have rejected the lordship of God and said, I will determine what's right for me. Now, it doesn't appear the same way in every individual, of course. Some are more civil and outwardly upstanding in the sight of men and women. Others are a wreck, even in the sight of men of godless men. Their whole life is plummeting downward and downward and downward. And so you can think for a moment of the difference as one illustration. Drug addict, you see, whose life is absolutely broken. Their bodies are riddled with sores. They stand, as it were, overwhelmed by the brokenness which they've brought upon themselves. And everyone in the world says that person is, is in a perilous state. Now by that, we don't mean that there aren't reasons for it, sufferings, abuses, and so on. But the point is, everyone looks at it and says, I don't want my child to turn out that way. That's natural. And yet you can contrast that with the CEO of a company who is rich and well-liked, whose family is in order, who is, as it were, The example of being a good citizen. And people look at that life and say, well, you know, I would like my children to be like that one. And yet, that man could have a life of full rejection of God and His Word in spite of the appearance of everything being in order. Why? Because to the extent he rejects God's Word, to the extent He, though outwardly conforms, yet inwardly is contrary to God's Word. He's gone astray. So here's an example from the Scriptures. Who would you rather have your children to be? Think of this. Would you rather them to be a student of God's Word? A life free of scandal. One who is well-respected, well-honored, every Lord's Day in the church, all the time talking about the Bible. What parent wouldn't say that's what I want? Versus one who is abusing God's people, stealing from God's people, taking from God's people, openly refusing God's name. Which would you want? And obviously on the surface, it's quite apparent until you see why Christ uses the Pharisees as a testimony of self-righteousness. On the outside, you're whited, sepulchres, beautiful, dignified, apparently desirable. but Everyone knows. On the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Think of the parable Christ gives of the Pharisee who comes to the temple grounds and he draws near to God and he looks up, as it were, and says, God, I thank Thee that I'm not like other men. And he recounts his own righteousness by the way which no one would refute. And then, off in the distance is the publican, the tax collector, the turncoat, the one who openly is despised by men. And his head is cast down. And his hand is beating his own chest and he's crying out, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now ask yourself this, which one of them had turned unto their own way? And the answer is both. The Pharisee, who outwardly was respectable and put together and religious and dignified, had turned unto his own way. And the tax collector, who has come to see himself as the sinner, which by the way means one who has gone astray, he had turned to his own way. One was more obvious and evident, and the other was more overshadowed by the outward display of dignified public living. What's the point? Both of them had turned into their own way because both of them had turned away from God. And thus, both of them stand as deserving the Lord's punishment. What is it that Every sin deserves Paul tells us in Romans the wages of sin is what a little word of reproof a few tears shed you know a little bit of shame in the eye of men and women no the wages of sin is death it's nearly impossible to express this to the conviction and indeed to the persuasion of a sinner Indeed, apart from the Spirit's work, it can't be done. Because the sinner says, well, yeah, I've sinned, but you're, you're telling me for a second, let me understand this. My sins demand everlasting damnation. Hold up a moment. Because I can line up person after person after person, whole society after whole society after whole society, and I stand... Head and shoulders above them in respectable living, to which no one rejects or denies. No one says that's wrong. But the problem is that though head and shoulders above other sinners, there is an infinite beneath of the standard of God's law. There's not something that one is nearer to fulfilling God's law and God says, well, good job. He says, you have not reached and indeed have transgressed the law of God. Why is it that they deserve death? Well, the sinner can't understand this until the Lord opens their eyes because they've sinned against the High and Holy One. In turning to their own way, it's not just if we stare, as it were, at the mass of people and say, this one's going that way, this one's going that way, that looks to be a bit better, It's that they're actually all going away from God. They're all fleeing from God. It doesn't matter if they turn to the right or to the left. It doesn't matter if they go straight or back. What they're not doing is going to God and what they are doing is fleeing from Him. Remember Adam and Eve. They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it manifests itself, doesn't it? God draws near. What do they do? They run and hide. They're convicted. They're ashamed. They tried to cover up themselves. And yet, they deserved death. We all stand under a curse because we have all gone to our own way. Brethren, understand this. It's true. This is what every sinner deserves. But notice, Christ is presenting to us His sheep This is what his sheep deserve. This is what the Apostle Paul deserved. This is what Augustine deserved. This is what you and I deserve. We deserve this judgment because we have turned to our own way. And that's the fundamental thing. Man, as a sinner, has looked at God's law and said, nope, I'll do it my way. I'll figure it out. I'll take it on. Well, thus, they deserve... His judgment. But notice this is in and of itself not the reason that Christ laid down His life for His people, though it is indeed a background cause. We see Him refer to them and notice the emphasis that He knows My sheep and am known of Mine. They're His. It's true, of course, that There are men in this life who lay down their lives for strangers. We understand that. But it is certainly all the more true and understanding for us that men are willing to sacrifice their life for their own family and gladly do it. Well, this is the point that Christ is emphasizing. They're mine. God has given them to me. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 17, and you'll see this emphasis in his prayer, verse 9, when he says, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Remember that which we noted in the text, his dual intimacy with the Father and with his people. Here we see it again. I'm praying for them who are Thine, which You gave to Me out of the world. These are the ones that I am giving Myself. All Mine are Thine, and Thine are Mine. And I'm glorified in them. Here is the point. Christ sees them as His own. He has set His affection upon them from before the foundation of the world. We have, of course, the Bible using the term covenant very many times. And yet we can see these grand covenants within the Scriptures reveal. The covenant of works, whereby God covenanted with man that if he should perform all the obedience personally and perfectly and perpetually, he should have life by it. No man has done it. No man can do it any longer since Adam. But then there is that covenant of grace whereby God covenants with His chosen ones to save them by Christ, which is indeed the emphasis of the Bible's message. But in the back of that is what Christ is opening for us in John 17, the covenant of redemption, whereby God the Father gave to God the Son a chosen people. And God the Son willingly, delightfully, gladly said, I will give Myself for them. So when we see the cross, we need to understand this. This is preeminently a display of Christ's love for His Father and for His people. That is the preeminent display. It's not that there's not more to say about it. But this is the scriptural emphasis. He's laying down His life for His sheep. They're His. Notice, moreover, He says in identifying Himself, I am... The good shepherd. Whereas evil and perverted and twisted shepherds would flee, he rather runs unto the rescue. Our nation right now is riddled with all sorts of debates. We understand that we don't intend to take those up. But we do understand this question that comes about first responders, don't we? And so there's typically this question. When there's a shooting what do the first responders do? Do they run toward the shooting, or do they run away from the shooting? And we stand with an amazement for those who run toward it, because they're giving themselves to the danger to fulfill their office, to fulfill their vows, and to do that which they have given themselves to to protect and to defend. And though we understand it, we look upon those who run away, while on duty especially. And we, with sympathy, yet acknowledge that they have earned the title coward. Now, who knows what we would do in such a moment. But here's the point. Christ is no coward. Christ doesn't look at the cross and say, I think I've signed up for more than I intended to sign up for. If you read the records of various wars, both in our nation and other nations, you'll know that when wars are rumored to come, there's generally a group of young men who, with the enthusiasm of young men, say, That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sign up. I'm going to get valor. I'm going to go forth and be courageous and all these things. And yet, then you talk to them or you read the record and you realize they become overwhelmed when the actual bullets are flying past them and the bombs are exploding and their friends with whom they went through basic training and with whom they laughed and cried and wept and served and all of these things are now obliterated and riddled with bullets, it's then that they say, what have I done? And there are many who turn back. But here, Christ laid down His life because He is the Good Shepherd who knowing the fullness of the wrath of God, the fullness of all that His people deserved, and let's be particular, the fullness believer of what you deserved, And the fact that your sin was not against His Father as if it was not against Him, but against God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that your sins are against Him. And yet He says, because they're My people and because I'm good, I'll give My life for them. Why? Because He loves them. He's no coward. He's not one to turn away. In fact, the record of Scripture shows Him with increasing zeal, rushing toward the cross, not with reckless abandonment, but rather with an informed, intelligent, and loving zeal to glorify His Father's plan and purpose of saving His own and to save His beloved people in love. Well, brethren, there's more, of course, We see here the reason that Christ laid down his life, considering what they deserved by their sin, considering that they are his, and considering his goodness to accomplish all that was required in spite of the personal agony he would undergo. Notice then, secondly, the way Christ laid down his life for his people. The text admittedly doesn't say much as to the exact specifics, but there is an important statement that's here. I lay down my life for the sheep. So you have two people, as it were. I and my sheep. And notice he's saying, I'm doing something for them. But this word for is not just testifying of purpose, but of substitution. I for them. I'm taking on what they deserve. I'm putting myself in their place. So sometimes you can think of it this way. If you've been in school, you've heard things like a substitute teacher come. And you can think back to your days in high school perhaps, or uh, in grade school, whatever it is, and that day that the substitute appears they typically say something like this, My name is Mr. So-and-so, and I'm here for your teacher. They're not just there for a purpose, they're here in place of. They're here as a substitute, one standing in the place of another. And that's what's being said here. Christ is giving Himself for, in place of, His people. And notice we mentioned earlier, Isaiah chapter 56, that chapter is... Abundant in this very point. Notice verse 6 All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, our iniquity on him. Notice again, it speaks of this in verse 5 He was wounded, there's the laying down of his life, for our transgression. There's the substitution. He was bruised. There's His laying down of His life. For our iniquities. There's the substitution. The chastisement. There's the suffering of the cross. Of our peace was upon Him. There's the substitution. Again and again and again. This chapter is overwhelmingly clear. The suffering of the Christ is a suffering in place of what his people deserved, I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, he laid down his life substitutionally. Think of how Paul speaks of this in second Corinthians and chapter five, when he testifies so clearly in verse 21, "He, God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, Jesus Christ, to be sin for. Us. You see the substitution? Our sins placed upon Him. So now God looks upon His Son and says, I see their sin on you. He's made a curse that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Substitutionally, He laid down His life In other words, there's an important truth. The Scriptures tell us that the death of Christ does give us an example by which we can learn how to love one another. However, that's secondary (coughs) to the primary point. His death is in substitution for what His people deserve. But notice, The Scriptures inform us that the substitution was to the end that he would be judged. So it's substitutionally that he laid down his life. It's also, secondly, judicially that he laid down his life. So in other words, the work of God the Father toward God the Son incarnate was not something that was just chosen at a whim. But there was the exercise of precise and searching justice upon His Son. He was made sin for us. Go back to Isaiah 53 and you see it. You know, by His stripes we're healed. Our iniquity was laid upon Him. Remember this. God is holy. He sees sin, detests it. It's not like you and I who can look at sin And if we're not watchful, we start to be drawn after it. Or at the least, we become somewhat desensitized. Isn't that true of us? We look around at sin and at first glance we say, oh, how abhorrent. Then we sort of live, as it were, in the context and we start to lessen our concern about it. That's not like God. God is ever and always absolutely opposed to sin. We're told in the Scriptures, He's so holy that He cannot look upon sin. He despises sin. Oh, how can we put this personally? Your treasured lusts, God abhors. He detests every aspect of it. As parents, sometimes we look at the misbehavior of our children And we sort of smirk and say, well, isn't that cute? You know, they've said no when they should have said yes. And they've sort of put on a pouty face. And we look at that and we say, oh, well, they're just a kid. That's not like God. God doesn't look at the disobedience of His children and say, oh, isn't that cute? They're my children and so on. because the cross clearly testifies what He thinks about your sins. He despises every aspect of every sin of thought and word and deed. Otherwise, the cross makes no sense because it's by the cross that His people are saved. Every beating of Christ, every stripe upon His back every mockery and shame he endured, the nakedness of his body, the beating beyond recognition, the being made a curse as a spectacle before all the world, and the wrath of God poured out, dear Christian, is everything you deserve for every slight sin that you've ever committed. That's what he endured. And he counted it His privilege and delight to endure it because of love. When we think little of sin, we think necessarily little of Christ. When we think, oh, it's just a little sin, then we should fill that statement out with, oh, it's just a little cross. When we say, well, it's not a big deal that I've done this, or the thoughts aren't that big of a deal, then we should say, well, it's not a big deal what Christ undertook for our salvation. Does this not overwhelm us with the reprehensible reality of the impurities of thoughts and words and deeds with which we have confused ourselves in sin? He gave His life for judicially His people. But He also gave His life willingly. Notice the simplicity of the statement. I lay down my life. He doesn't say, well, after all, I'm forced to be here. You know, sometimes children are forced to give an apology. And you can tell every fabric of their being is resentful of the fact that they have to recite these words. So mom sends them to a sibling or to a father or to a neighbor, and they say, you need to say these words. You need to say, what I did was sinful. It was wrong. Would you please forgive me? And they go up there with all of their countenance dropped and their body as rigid as possible, and they say, I'm sorry that you're upset. And then the mom pulls him back and says, that's not the deal. Nope. You're going to confess that you've sinned. You're going to say to your brother, what I did was sinful. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. Would you forgive me? And they say, fine. And they go up there the same way and they say, I guess I'm going to do this. I've said it. Would you forgive me? And they go on. The parents get worn out by this. Because what's going on is a force, which is right, Parents shouldn't say, well, they're not willing, so I'm not going to make them do it. That's absolutely ridiculous. No, we make them learn this process. But here's the beauty of the passage before us. Christ is not there with a rigid body, a furrowed brow, and a clenched hand and saying, well, I'm here because my Father made me come. He's here because He's willing to lay down His life for whom? Oh, we would get it if He said, I'm laying down my life for my Father. And of course, that's true. He was laying down His life in accordance to His Father's purpose and for His Father's glory, but that's not what His focus is here. He has in mind all of His people. He has in mind all of their sins and what they deserve, and He says, I'm here for them, and I gladly, willingly lay down My life for them. Now the world hears that and says, well, hurrah, you know, big deal bunch of things happen, but the Christian who is overwhelmed with a sense of sin and shame, who realizes, oh God, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. And then they hear God the Son saying, I've come to lay down my life for you. And it absolutely overwhelms us because our whole approach is to try and work off our purpose, work off our iniquity. But Christ comes and says, in effect, you can't do that. But what you can't do, I'm going to undertake, and I'm glad to do it. See, the Bible shatters the brokenness of all self-righteousness, and it puts all hope upon Christ laying down His life willingly. Brethren, remember this. And really, you can't capture it all, of course, but there's no chance of you capturing the glory of the cross unless you first realize the shame, not of sin, but of your sin. It's one thing to look at what others do and say, well, now, you know, that's resentful and that's ridiculous and that's horrible and that's ugly and oh, why don't they get their act together and aren't they ashamed of what they do? And yet, none of that will do anything to increase our love and wonder toward Christ. What will is when we realize my sins deserve unending agony, misery, judgment, damnation. I deserve to be paraded before the whole of the universe and to hear shouted out from the rooftop every single sin that I've committed. And for everyone to be aghast. You know, sometimes people are at work and they're using the internet for things they shouldn't do. So what do they do? Well, they get savvy and they delete the history. They get more involved and they delete any way of tracking it down. And they feel like, now I'm okay. Okay. And then a scandal erupts. You hear about this in the news, don't you? And then what they thought they did well is overwhelmed by the ability of people with far superior skill, knowledge, and technology. And they pull up from their IP address, from their computers and other things, the files that they were using. And the scandal blazes across the world. You and I think that we have in effect many times deleted our history and no one knows. But God knows. God sees it all. And it is right if He were to blaze it across the universe and say, look what they've thought in this moment. Look what they thought about their husband. Look what they thought about their wife. Look how they thought of their children. Look what they thought of their pastor. Look what they thought of the Bible. Look what they thought about me. And he would be right to blazon that across the universe in the presence of all and to say, and I consign this one to the unending agony where the worm dies not and their conscience will ever feed upon their shame. But Christ says, oh, can we capture this? Christ says, I lay down My life for them. I take their shame upon Me. Give it to Me. I want it because I want them. I want their shame heaped upon Me. I want the curse put upon Me because I love them. I want them. I've come to give My life for them. He's willing. He's earnest. And He is victorious. He lays down his life for the sheep. Notice just beyond in verse 17 I lay down my life that I might take it again. And so he comes, in other words, and he's successful in his purpose. News, of course, captured the attention of many in the world when this submersible descended to see the Titanic. And its purpose was to go and view this wreck. But its purpose was overcome by the pressure that was pushing upon its walls. If you or I sought to accomplish what Christ accomplished, we would be obliterated and there would be no hope. But Christ both descends into the depths which no one can plummet and He ascends successfully accomplishing His purpose. He goes to the deepest pressure of God's searching justice. And He says, I'm go- yep, I know what all the danger is. I don't need to sign waivers because I know it all. I'm going to experience The immeasurable wrath of God because I love my people. But I'm also going to come back because successful. I'm also going to come back because victorious. I'm also going to come back having overcome the depths and pressure and searching justice and damnation that my people deserved. I'm going to swallow it up. The cup of God's wrath I'm going to drink down. And you watch, though I die for them, yet will I come to life again for them. And what happens? Children, you know this. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. He remained under the power of death for three days. And then He rose again. What's this day about? People say, well, it's Sunday. Well, perhaps we can use that term. It's fine. But let's be a bit more historically accurate. It's the Lord's Day. It's the day on which Christ arose from the dead. It's the recurring memorial for all time until the return of Christ that says the One who came, suffered, and died. The One who was crucified and laid down His life. He took it up again. And He's risen and ascended. And so He stands victorious having accomplished all that He said He would. What does this do for us? Well, there's all sorts of sentimentality that's based on truth and sometimes based on just sentimentality when we think about those who lost their lives in this submersible. And yet, when we think of Christ, there's not sentimentality. There is hope hope, because He died and rose again, I know that He accomplished what was required for my salvation. Because if He had died and remained dead, who knows, but that there's still something for which I must answer. But because He died and drained, as it were, the wrath of God against us, to the last drop And rose again, as we look to Christ, we can be absolutely 100% confident. I now, in trusting Christ, have peace with God, period. Brethren, we think on these things in preparation for the Lord's Supper. And as we do, we have here for the convicted but believing one your peace. It's not that your sins are small. It's not that your sins are less than others. It's not because as a young man, you're not doing the same thing that other young men are doing, or because you're a young mom that you got your act a bit better together than other young moms. It's not because you're comparatively better than others. It's because though your sins are wicked and abominable, Christ in love for you answered what was demanded for your salvation. That's it. It's not because you've been more faithful. It's not because you're more diligent. It's not because of any of that. It's all fixed upon, focused on, founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we start to divert our attention from Him to other things, no wonder we become overwhelmed. No wonder we become anxious. Because what we're fundamentally doing is saying, I'll take what is my deserving unto myself, instead of making sure it's square and founded solely upon Christ, my acceptance, my peace, my hope, my joy is Christ crucified. The whole of the ministry, Paul summarizes, in that we preach Christ what? We preach Christ the jokester the culturally hip and relevant. We preach Christ who gets us. We preach Christ who is really artistic and insightful and all of these things. And Paul says, what are you talking about? We preach Christ who makes us better people. We preach Christ who makes me a better father, a better husband, a better mother, a better sister, a better whatever else. No! We preach Christ crucified. in the story. There's no hope outside of the crucified Savior. I lay down my life for my sheep. He doesn't say, here's the hope, here's why I've come, to make my sheep better. I've come to lay down my life for them. Yes, He works within us, but His work within us is not our peace Yes, He works within us and truly transforms us, but that's not our hope. Yes, He conforms us more and progresses us along in the conformity to God's holy law, but that's not our acceptance with God. It's Christ crucified. Here is your hope with an intense and beaming light. Christ is saying, look to me only. Brethren, think of this. What does the sacrament of the Lord's Supper do? The Lord's Supper, as appointed by Christ, draws all of our attention to what? You'd be right to say Christ. That's true. You'd be right to say the Savior. That's absolutely accurate. The Son of God incarnate. 100%. But there's actually a more intense beam upon one aspect of His work. And what is it? It's Christ crucified. That's the focus. It's not generically Christ. It's not Christ in some other aspects, though all is included. We don't mean to separate and divide Christ, but what's being focused on intensely and with such clarity that if we miss it, it's our fault, is that Christ was broken for us. That His blood was poured out for us. Not as a spectacle to parade around and to think about, but to take and say, that's what I deserved. But He took it for me and I take Him. And in taking Him, I have peace with God. I have acceptance. I have life everlasting because of Christ crucified. Brethren, The sacrament is appointed in the Word of God by Christ Himself. This is My body which is broken for you. Take. Eat. This cup is the New Testament in My blood. Drink ye all of it in remembrance of Me. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is the intense display of Christ's crucified love for us. May I ask if you are here without trusting in this Christ, what hope do you have? Children, do you think that the God who crucified His only begotten Son will say to sons of His people, don't worry about it. I'm just going to take you in. You don't need Christ. It's not true. He calls you in His covenant surrounded by promises and says, look to My Son. Your only hope is by looking to Christ Jesus. That's the hope. That's the focus. That's the only peace. And if we say, nope, I'll take it. I got it. Well, what we're doing as sheep is turning astray. And we're saying no to the only remedy which God provides. Oh, brethren and friends, consider Christ, His love, His faithfulness, His generosity and kindness in giving Himself for His people. Believers, see all your sins as laid upon Him at the Lord's Supper. Come and eat and drink in remembrance of Him who laid down His life for you. We come now to the fencing of the Lord's table in preparation for the Lord's Supper, we find our biblical warrant for the Lord's Supper in many places, in the Gospels, but as well recorded in 1 Corinthians and chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul was reforming certain of the abuses that had been practiced in Corinth, and he comes to the Lord's Supper, and in correcting, he doesn't say, listen, you know, i got to study the culture here, get it right, and I'll put it in an order. No. He says in verse 23, "...I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He brake it and said, Take, eat, this is My body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of Me." To the same manner also He took the cup when He had supped, saying, "...This cup is the New Testament in My blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of Me." For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body you'll notice in these words as elsewhere in the scriptures the sacrament is presented as a feast it's not a feast as the world judges that though it uses real bread and real wine it's not about the measure of the bread and wine as it is the message of the bread and wine there's real bread that has to be broken taken eaten and so on real wine that has to be taken and drunken all of that's true But that is a sign pointing to something else. Christ, while incarnate, while yet living, before His crucifixion, no one misunderstanding this says, this is My body. He breaks it after blessing and He gives it and He's telling them to eat it. No one there would have thought, well, He's cutting off a piece of His body and He's shoving it in My throat. Not the case. It's a sign. It's pointing to the reality. It's saying, just as My body must be broken, so to help you understand this bread is broken, to assist and to help and direct your understanding to the broken body of Christ. And as His blood was poured out, an emblem of His death, the real death, so this cup is the New Testament in My blood. This meal and feast is not just a remembrance, but notice in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? What's being said is this, these are not just signs, though truly signs. These are also seals and means by which through faith, we actually commune with the Christ who suffered. Now let's be clear. The Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. It's not a new sacrifice of Christ. It's not putting Christ back on the cross and He going through the crucifixion. That's obscene and it's godless and it's astounding that there are people who assert the same even within the church today. It was appointed for Him to die once. And so He died once. But here before us is nonetheless a real communing with the body and blood of Christ. How? Admittedly, there's tremendous mystery to this. And yet, just as we commune with Christ by faith in His Word, so we commune with Christ by faith in the sacrament. Now, what's going on is with a focused attention to His brokenness and His death, so presented to us, we are necessarily communing with Him in the remembrance of His death. But to have fellowship is more than just to remember. It's to share in. And what's being said is this, as you take the bread and by faith eat, as you take the cup and by faith drink, the benefits of His death are communicated to you. What does that mean? Well, it means that All that He's purchased is, as it were, held forth to you to say, take it. And as we take the bread, we take it. And we can say, as Christ says elsewhere, be it so according to your faith. But faith must be well founded upon the message of the cross. This is why it's necessary to discern the Lord's body. This is why we don't say, well, the child has said they want to come to the table. Let them come to the table. No. They have to understand and be able to recite and explain these things at least to the ability that it's faithful to the Scriptures and that they can personally testify of faith in Him that stands the assessment of well-trained and loving shepherds. So brethren, as we have this inestimable benefit of the sacrament, we have as well the necessity of being strengthened by it What does food do? Children, you're hungry perhaps. You smell the food and your stomach starts to growl. You say, what? You don't say, well, I just want to leave and not eat. You say, I want to eat. Why? Your body is giving you signs of hunger. Well, spiritually, the soul needs spiritual food. Remember what we considered last week. My flesh is meat indeed. My blood is drink indeed. He's not talking about the sacrament, remember. But the sacrament is talking about Him. And so we come to be fed and nourished. And yet all of this is reminded to us with the remembrance that there is great danger in coming unprepared or ignorant or presumptuous. This is why, as he says... He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation, that is judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Brethren, he doesn't say he that is unworthy and eats and drinks versus he that is worthy and eats and drinks. He says he that eateth and drinketh unworthily. The act of partaking is it in knowledge and faith. It's not asking, is the person all the way put together? That's not the question. That's not the standard. But is the person who's coming, eating and drinking with understanding and with faith upon the Savior who was crucified and is risen and is reigning? So brethren, if you stand as it were as one saying, but I'm unworthy, that's true of everyone who has ever sat at the table apart from one. At the first administration of the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ was at the table personally in his incarnate ministry. But everyone else who has ever been at the Lord's table in themselves is unworthy. So, how is it that they can come with confidence and assurance? Because they come looking to Christ to receive of him life and blessing. Well, it is our custom that only they who have been admitted